Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Given the creeping panic about coronavirus, I thought I would try and distract you with this, a series of ghost stories I first told on the BBC more than a decade ago. They're not scary ones, but personal ones. Researching my book, Emancipation, I discovered many people forgotten by history and went around Europe in search of their spirits. There are five stories in all, each around 14 minutes. You can listen in one go or dip in, dip out. Please share them. I won't be back at the end, so I will ask now. Please go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. The bells of Amsterdam's Westerkirk told another hour past, another hour to come. Here at the corner of Prinsengracht and Rosengracht, the city goes about its business without listening. Workers on cycles, on trams, head home in the early part of a late winter evening. Just at the horizon, a line of light, silver as a herring's skin, gives a hint of the longer days not far off. The people going home at their steady pace, they don't do rush, even at rush hour in Amsterdam, pass the church without a glance at the statue of a girl in the little market plaza that separates the building from the street and canal. It's a bronze of Anne Frank, who lived for a time just around the corner from the Westerkirk in a hidden suite of rooms. She stands on a plinth, perhaps two-thirds her real size, hands clasped behind back, pleated skirts falling to below the knee. It might be a Degas sculpture of a ballerina, if Degas did innocence rather than lusciousness. Anne Frank is the most potent symbol of the catastrophe that befell not just the Jews, but the whole continent in its terrible six-year convulsion. She has been a perfect symbol for seven decades. There is virtually no hero or heroine of that terrible time who has not been debunked, whose clay feet have not been exposed. But Anne survives without a mark on her reputation, the all-purpose representative of the innocence destroyed in the Holocaust. Anne Frank is a ghost but just one. Europe is full of Jewish ghosts, more ghosts than living Jewish people. I feel them everywhere. It's odd. I'm not religious, have married outside the faith, am integrated, secular, Hellenized, as a radical Jewish settler in Jerusalem once called me, yet I look for Jewish ghosts wherever I can in Europe, not ghosts of the six million. There are plenty of ghost hunters looking after them, and sadly more than a few people today denying they even exist. No, I look for the ones who came before. They too need to have their unquiet spirits appeased by living remembrance. The black weight of the Holocaust cut the connection to what happened in the centuries just before the elimination of the Jews in Europe, the era of emancipation, when ghettos were opened and Jews joined the mainstream. These are my ghosts, and they're everywhere. Although it isn't likely the unhurried workers heading home know that. Nor is it likely they know the story of emancipation actually began in Amsterdam, on the other side of the city, in the shadow of another church. A more joyous peal marks the passage of time at the Zyderkirk, the first Protestant church in the city, foundations laid in 1603. 
its peel reached into my ghost's ears as well, because at around that time, Amsterdam began to acquire a Jewish community. For most of the Jews arriving in Amsterdam in the first decades of the 17th century, this was the last stop on a journey that had begun in 1492, when they were expelled from Spain and continued via Portugal and its dominions in South America. When the overwhelmingly Protestant Dutch provinces successfully rebelled against the Catholic Spanish towards the end of the 16th century, many Portuguese Jews made their way to the Netherlands, particularly to Amsterdam. Here they were granted the status of resident aliens and began to build a life within the sound of the Zyderkirk church bells. Ghost hunters are archaeologists of the ethereal. We cut metaphorical trenches from the surface of the present through layers of accreted history. On the surface today, the area around the church is still full of resident aliens and the alienated, huddling together voluntarily. Of course, none of them are Jewish. It's the city's unofficial ghetto for representatives of the social changes that have washed over Amsterdam since the 1960s. The trench I'm digging extends four centuries down and a hundred yards to the other side of the Odeschans Canal, to a knob of land still called the Jodenbert, the Jewish district. Here, the Portuguese Jews organized their own synagogue, schools, and religious courts. They were not forced to live there, but a kind of self-ghettoization kept the community physically close together because the daily rituals of Jewish life made it convenient for everyone to live close to the synagogue. The Jewish ghosts of this city are more easily accessed than any other place in Europe. At one end of the Judenbriestrat, Jews' Broad Street, is the house and studio of Rembrandt, who painted a number of his wealthier Jewish neighbors, his genius still gives them life today when you look at them in the Rijksmuseum. At the opposite end of the Broad Street from the artist's home is the great Portuguese synagogue where the Jews worshipped. On a continent filled with architectural monuments of faith, we Jews have no old houses of worship, so it's a good place to go and feel the ghosts. The absence of historic synagogues is not entirely down to the Nazis, in the four centuries of ghetto life before emancipation, roughly from the time of the Black Death through the Napoleonic Wars, most synagogues were made of wood. Impermanence was a feature of life. Fire and expulsion destroyed whatever architectural heritage there might have been. But in Amsterdam, the wealthy Portuguese community built in brick and built on a large scale. The synagogue, the Esnoga, is a massive rectangular box whose dimensions are supposed to echo those of the temple in Jerusalem. It sits within its walled precinct, towering over the motorway traffic being routed under the Waterloo Plain for points outside the city centre. You feel and smell the place first. Damp clings to your skin and makes tangible in the nostrils the smell of unvarnished wood and sand. This is still a working synagogue, and the handful of people who worship here are also engaged in willful acts of preservation. The floors have never been polished, because muddy boots would ruin the finish. Sand was what was laid down on them at the first, and so it is to this day. No electric lights, either. The massive chandeliers are still lowered from the three-story high ceiling to have their more than one thousand candles lit before a service. Once your nose and skin adjust to the moist smell, you become aware of the light. The Esnoga was built around the time Sir Christopher Wren was building St. James's Piccadilly 
but it has more windows, and they are much, much larger, so that what light there is in the day floods inside the building. Daylight is nice, but I wanted to see the place illuminated by a thousand candles. I asked the fellow who sold me my entry ticket whether there would be services that evening. No, he explained. The community is too small now. Before the war, Amsterdam's Jewish population was 120,000. Today, it's around 20,000. There are only 200 families who follow the Portuguese or Sephardic tradition. There is a room in the Esnoga complex for daily service for the handful who worship regularly. The great synagogue itself is only used a few times a year, like the High Holy Days. He laughed ruefully. Maybe we should give the building to the Muslims. They could fill it every day. The community that built the Esnoga was confident, proud, and wealthy, and the building survives not so much as a house of worship, but as a monument to its members' separate but equal place in Dutch society during the Golden Age. The ghost I want to find more than any other in Amsterdam was born into that same community, but expelled from it, and his presence wiped away. Leaving the Esnoga in the drizzle that fell the whole time I was in Amsterdam, I walked back across the Waterloo Plain to the Moses and Arenkirk, equally massive in size, but nowhere near as light as the Esnoga. On the site of this church was the birthplace and early home of the philosopher Benedict de Spinoza. In 1656, for reasons that have never been made clear, Spinoza was excommunicated by the leaders of the Portuguese Jewish community in Amsterdam. It is hard to convey the meaning of that excommunication today. To be cast out in this way was more than psychologically painful. It was physically dangerous. The modern idea of the individual making his own way in the world did not exist yet. In the 17th century, the community was your identity and the source of protection, friendship, and security. Spinoza turned excommunication into personal liberation. He told a friend, they do not force me to do anything I would not have done of my own accord if I did not dread scandal. I enter gladly on the path that is open to me. The path he walked led him away from Amsterdam, ultimately to The Hague, but it wasn't the physical place his journey led that was important. It was the place in his mind, a place where he could think about the nature of God and the nature of the states men create to bind themselves together. The two subjects in his time were linked inextricably, and he intended to break that link. In the one and only book he published in his lifetime, the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, Spinoza argued that if society curbed freedom of thought and speech for religious reasons, the peace of the state would be destroyed. The clergy have no special political role to fill in the state. Indeed, it is disastrous to grant religious functionaries any right to concern themselves with state business. He stated clearly that the laws of human nature applied to everyone equally and that no one group was elect. He suggested tolerance be the core of the social contract. The purpose of the state in reality is freedom. This meant democracy was the most natural form of state because it is not based on coercion or fear. In this way, he concluded, all remain equal. No modern philosopher had ever used democracy like that Spinoza knew he was on dangerous ground. The clergy, Catholic and Protestant, sat at the right hand of Europe's rulers. This book challenged their power directly. Spinoza was a brave thinker, but no martyr. 
he published the Tractatus anonymously. But the world of Dutch philosophy was small. Everyone knew who the author had to be. The renegade Jew from hell, as he was unaffectionately known. Baruch Spinoza died alone at the age of 44. He was never reconciled to the Jewish community. The essence of him returned to Amsterdam. His desk, with all his papers locked securely away, was transported back to the city of his birth. He left instructions for publishing them posthumously. There were other political philosophers who built on the foundations laid by Spinoza, and a century after his death, his writing underpinned revolutionary thinking in the United States and France. During the French Revolution, the notion of tolerance was finally extended to Jews. The ghettos were abolished, citizenship granted. Spinoza's expulsion from the Jewish community led directly to the dissolution of what held the community together, its segregation. I went looking for a plaque in the Judenbert to mark the fact that Spinoza was born and lived here. There may be one, but after making a couple of circuits of the Moses and Arankirk, I couldn't find it. Anne Frank has her little statue and museum, but the life she lived and lost would not have been possible if Spinoza had not been forced to leave the community and make his own way in the world. Surely he's entitled to more than my remembrance of him. I thought about this one evening sitting in the courtyard of the Zyderkirk. I thought about Spinoza and Anne Frank. I thought about Spinoza and Rembrandt living down the block from one another, and it's impossible to imagine that they did not at least have a nodding acquaintance as they went about their business on the Jews' broad street. I sat on a bench, waiting for the peel to begin again. A young couple sat one bench over, smoking, nuzzling, laughing lightly. I wanted to ask them if they knew about Spinoza. Did they know about the Jews who used to live outside the gate on the Broad Street? But I didn't. Because, of course they know about Spinoza, the way German students know about Kant, or British students know about Locke and Hume, a name, a few key words. As for Jews, there are virtually none left to remember the way it was in the Golden Age. Perhaps I could just ask them for a cigarette as a way of starting the conversation. And then I realized the minute I told them I was looking for Jewish ghosts, they would walk away, or maybe even call the police. There's a crazy man on the loose. No, no, looking for ghosts is a private matter. Best to tell only those you trust about them. In Berlin, I prayed. I don't do that as a rule. I'm an atheist. But even for an atheist, there are some places where prayer is the only possible way to acknowledge the surroundings. I said the Kaddish, the prayer for the dead, when I was at Auschwitz to cover the ceremonies marking the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camp. When I was on assignment in Jerusalem a few years ago, I went to the Western Wall. The need to utter a prayer to a God who I am certain does not exist overwhelmed me. Irrational, I know. I put my head against the wall and said the Shema, the short prayer that marks Jews out as world changers, the prayer that says there is only one God, not a pantheon. It was a way of acknowledging that part of me which I cannot shed. I hadn't been inside a synagogue since 1980, but it was Friday night, Shabbat, and as I was in the German capital, it seemed right to go to services at the Neue Synagogue, New Synagogue, on Oranienburger Straße. Once the grandest Jewish house of worship in Europe, the place, 
built in the late 19th century, used to hold 3,200 people. It took a direct hit in the battle for Berlin, and the grand interior disappeared into dust. The bullet-scarred facade, a Moorish fantasy of arches and domes, languished during communist times. The exterior was renovated after German unification, and the congregation meets in a small, plain room built inside the grand dome that crowns the building. The space is adequate for the number of worshippers. I doubt there were more than fifty, including a small choir of half a dozen schoolchildren. I was late, and the service was underway. The old familiar prayer welcoming the Sabbath bride, Lecha Dodi, was being sung. I knew the melody, vaguely remembered the words, struggled to follow. As I said, I resist prayer, but the repetition and rhythmic chanting peeled away my defenses. I wept. I tried hard to stop, but I couldn't. I felt the weight of dead generations pressed down on me like a mountain. My own generations and others, my ghosts, my memory, my grandmother lighting Sabbath candles, her hands over her eyes, then over the flame, trying to pull the light into her heart. Passovers at her table when I was a boy. My grandfather and uncles no more religious than I am, but still Jewish. Since the ghettos were opened, to be born a Jew is to be born into a perpetual question of identity. Once you take religious practice out of the equation, are you still a Jew? Once you leave the ghetto, can you ever regard yourself as wholly equal in a Christian society if you're not one yourself? Or does being a Jew mean you belong to a race, an ethnicity, a separate nation? It's a question that was first asked here in Berlin at the very beginning of the Emancipation Era. And this is the ghost story I'm going to tell you. In 1670, the tiny, protected Jewish community of Vienna was expelled. It used to happen from time to time, but one door closes, another opens. Frederick I of Prussia was interested in building his kingdom into a European power, and to do that he needed capital. So he invited the 300 wealthiest Viennese Jewish families and their retainers and necessary adjuncts to Berlin. They set up a community, went to work raising funds so Prussia could grow. The deal was the community would regulate itself, and it did. All Jewish visitors to the city had to pass the community's test before they were allowed in. It was a way to keep the peddlers and Jewish beggars and other riffraff out. One day in autumn 1743, a crippled, impoverished adolescent turned up at the Rosenthaler Gate, the one entry point for Jews into the city. He was taken for interrogation by the community's beadle into a little hut by the gate. The boy had the right name to drop. He was looking for his former teacher, Rabbi David Frankel, now Berlin's chief rabbi. He was allowed in. The gatekeeper's logbook for the day notes that at the Rosenthaler Gate, six oxen, seven pigs, and one Jew entered the city. The boy was Moses Mendelssohn. By his mid-thirties, he had transformed himself into one of the leading philosophers of the German Enlightenment, a friend and colleague of Immanuel Kant, a writer of exceptional German prose, considering it was his third language. Young German philosophers on the make knew he was the man to see when they first arrived in Berlin. In 1769, one of them, a theologian named Lavater, issued a public challenge to Mendelssohn to take the obvious next step and convert to Christianity. Mendelssohn, a practicing Orthodox Jew, answered publicly, 
he would not convert. The Lavender challenge shattered something inside Mendelssohn. He thought he had made a secure place for himself as a Jew integrated into Prussian society. He knew he could not be a university professor because he was Jewish. He'd made his peace with that. He earned his living running a silk manufacturing business and had long accepted he would have to do philosophy on the side. But now that balance was shattered. When he resumed his career as an intellectual, it was to found a social movement called Haskalah. He would help integrate his people into the mainstream of German life. He translated the Torah into German to help them learn the language properly. And so the identity crisis began. Mendelssohn had a lovely dream, but that was all it was. Hold fast to the religion of your fathers, he enjoined the community. But after his death, five of his children converted to Christianity. They did it for love, and they did it to make business alliances. His eldest daughter fell madly in love with the poet Friedrich von Schlegel, divorced her Jewish husband, and moved in with him. The couple received guests, and so was born the Jewish Salon. By the end of the 18th century, there were nine regular get-togethers in Berlin hosted by Jewish women, most of whom had converted. One hostess who didn't was Rachel Levin. Hers was the most intellectually rarefied of the Salons. Here the leading Christian and Jewish intellectuals mixed amiably and discussed Goethe, what it meant to be a good German in a time when there was no Germany, how to build a modern society without the chaos and violence of the French Revolution. Rachel was not beautiful. She seems to have been average in every way, medium height, medium weight, pleasing enough to look at, but not ravishing. Yet she was a charismatic presence. She possessed the gift of words, but was born a little too soon to become a full-time author, a career not open at the time to a Berlin Jewess. So Rachel poured her intelligence, sensibility, and extraordinary talent with words into conversation and letter-writing, and her subject over and over again was her identity crisis. Here she was, entertaining the most important thinkers in Berlin, but somehow she was always aware that she was different, and they regarded her as not being their equal. Just as I was born, she wrote to David Veit, a member of the same close-knit wealthy Jewish society in which she had grown up. Some otherworldly being plunged a dagger into my heart with these words on it. Yes, have sensibility, see the world as few see it, be great and noble, nor will I take from you the faculty of eternal thinking, but I add one more thing. Be a Jewess, and now my life is a slow bleeding to death. Her friend Veit wrote back, It is doubtful anyone has ever written more pitifully and truthfully about Jews than you. Rachel was grateful for her friend's empathy and wrote to him, Only the galley slaves recognize each other. She constantly wondered who she was, what this in-between identity she found herself living meant. In a segregated society, forced to live inside a ghetto, this would not have been a question, but now it assailed her. She was a member of the first generation who faced this dilemma and was one of the first to try and put it into words. Philip Roth and Howard Jacobson, among others, are still trying. For years she remained in the no-man's land familiar to all members of minorities who were trying to integrate and assimilate, neither of your own culture nor accepted in the majority culture, always trying to get people to accept you as an individual human being, not as some preconceived idea of what a Jew or an African-American or a Muslim is. She wrote to a friend, Rebecca Friedlander, 
How hard it is always to have to legitimize yourself. That's why it is hateful to be a Jewess. Eventually, she found an answer to her dilemma through the love of a younger man and conversion to Christianity. Rachel was well into her thirties when she met Karl August Varnhagen von Ense. After a six-year courtship, she agreed to marry him. Rachel was forty-three, he was twenty-nine. A few days before the ceremony, she converted and wrote of the pastor who christened her, He received me as if Spinoza himself wanted to be baptized, so crushed was he with honor. The Salon continued, and Rachel became the guiding light for the next generation of Jews facing the identity question. The poet Heinrich Heine, half her age, was a regular during the two years he was a law student in Berlin. She recognized in him a fellow galley slave. They teased each other in Yiddish accents, laughed about their visits to country cousins living in the shtetls of Poland, shook their heads in disbelief that somehow they, sophisticated and cosmopolitan, were closely related to these primitive people living amid farm animals and the smell of garlicky chicken soup always on the stove. Heine's identity crisis was profound. He saw himself as a German, but there was not yet a Germany. Yet he was rejected by his fellow nationalists because he was a Jew. He taught Hebrew school, although he barely spoke the language and was not at all religious. Finally, he wanted to be regarded as a writer in and of himself, not a Jewish writer or a German writer, but just an individual sensibility, expressing himself in words. He never resolved his identity crisis, but the frustration of it did help him write works of genius. In the end, he too faced the conversion dilemma. Heine's verse made him famous quickly but it did not make him rich. When he finally finished his law degree, he thought he might get a university post and support himself by teaching, but without conversion, that was out of the question. He agonized. Rachel helped guide him to the inevitable decision. He was baptized, even though he knew it would do no good. And it didn't. There was no university job. He was not allowed to be a German until he moved to Paris and lived among the French. You can walk the path of this story from Rachel's flat to the site of the Rosenthaler Gate in little over an hour. And I did. Rachel is, of course, a ghost to the city's residence. There's no plaque to mark the place where she held court. As near as I could figure, she lived above what is today the Hermes shop. Across the Friedrichstrasse, a two-story high image of Kate Moss, touting Versace, flutters on the side of the Berlin branch of Galerie Lafayette. I walked briskly towards the Rosenthaler Gate, through the cobbled plaza between the State Opera House and the entry to Humboldt University, across Unter den Linden. Here was where the Nazis burned books written by Jews. Heine, when he was a regular at Rachel's, had written, Where men burn books, they will burn people also in the end. Prophecy is always a poet's greatest gift, and Heine had it in abundance. I carried on. The Rosenthaler Gate, of course, is long gone. It's now called Rosenthaler Place. The site of the hut where the Jewish beadle asked Moses Mendelssohn why he wanted to visit Berlin became, in the 19th century, when that sort of question was no longer necessary, a hostel for single Jewish men, and then it became a clothing store owned by the Fabish family. They, too, would be completely unknown. But today on the site is the Circus Hotel, and there's a little plaque put up by the team who run the place, noting the fate of the Fabish family and honoring their memory. Midway on my walk, 
I found myself standing on a tiny pedestrian bridge over Berlin's river, the Spree. I could see the freshly gilded dome of the new synagogue floating above the rooftops. On the other side of the bridge is the Museum Island. It was drizzling and cold, but on this day thousands of people were queuing to walk into the just-restored Neues Museum, crushed by a British bomb towards the end of the war. They have their ghosts, I thought. I have mine. They have their identity questions. I have mine. I'm not sure I would attend services again at the new synagogue. It seems disrespectful, but it was important to go once. It was a small act of defiance, a way of saying, on behalf of my ghosts, we're still here. Do you know who Gabriel Reeser was? No? I'm not surprised. Well, I promise to tell you shortly, and he is, or was, a very interesting fellow. It seems like no one knows of him even in his hometown, Hamburg. In the bar Orel on Barenfelderstrasse, I couldn't resist asking a grizzled, white-haired guy still clinging to his youth in 1968 if he knew Gabriel Reeser. Hamburg has 1.7 million people, he sneered. No, 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 no. He lived here in the 19th century. It was really quite important. Really, he said, then turned away. I wish he hadn't. Because I wanted to tell him Reeser was from around this part of town, Altuna, which in the early 19th century was a western suburb of Hamburg, but is now part of the city proper, and it was home to the city's Jewish population. Hamburg, free city, trading capital of the Baltic Sea, had a thriving Jewish community in the early 19th century, around the time Reeser was born. Its leading citizen was Solomon Heine, the poet Heinrich's rich uncle. Very rich uncle. The Jewish Reformation was in full swing in Hamburg while Reeser was a boy. The community, on its own, was reforming the centuries-old religious traditions that had marked ghetto life. The ghettos were disappearing, even if equal rights had not been offered by the hundreds of different political entities that comprised the German-speaking world. Many Jews felt they needed to change the way they worshipped so they would be ready to take their place as citizens when they finally got their rights. The reform movement changed everything. Rabbis began to dress like Lutheran pastors. They started to give sermons. The name of the house of worship changed. No more synagogue or shul. Reform worship took place in a temple. The temple had been in Jerusalem. In the almost two millennia of wandering and oppression following its destruction, a tradition grew that the temple could only be rebuilt in Jerusalem. What the reformers were saying by calling their building a temple was, the wandering is over. Germany is our home now. Everything was up for redefinition, including the term by which the community was known. The word Jew fell out of favor like the word Negro during the civil rights era in the 1960s. The emancipation era called for a new designation for the group. Israelite became the community's preferred form of reference throughout Europe, although Hebrew and follower of Moses were also acceptable. Gabriel Reeser grew up in this atmosphere, took his law degree, and found that, despite all his community's efforts to become more German, he was unable to practice or teach the law because he was a Jew. But he was not interested in the compromise of conversion. He was a Jew, and he was a German. So, in 1831, he began to proselytize for Jewish civil rights in Germany. 
In his first pamphlet, he wrote conversion should be no guarantee of German nationality. In his view, this turns a religious act into a political one. Rieser concluded, there is only one baptism that confers nationality. That is the baptism of blood in the common struggle for freedom and fatherland. Many Jews had fought against Napoleon in the wars of liberation. Their blood sacrifice had earned their community equal rights. He wrote pamphlets and started a magazine called Der Jude, The Jew. The title was a red flag to Germans and his own community. If they thought by changing the name Jew to something more acceptable to society, they would avoid injustice and hatred, they were wrong. Vain hope, he wrote. Believe me, hatred will find its man just like the angel of death. It shall recognize him through a thousand favorable names. Reeser pushed, was rejected, suffered from depression, roused himself, and in 1848, following the revolutions, played a crucial role in writing a constitution for a notional unified Germany. It gave full citizenship rights to all, regardless of religion. That state never came into existence, but the constitution was adopted by Hamburg, and finally, Rieser was allowed to practice law. In 1859, he was appointed the head of the city's Supreme Court, the first Jewish judge in all of Germany. It was an important life, but it has been completely forgotten, and I couldn't tell those who might learn the most from knowing about it, because they don't speak English, and in some cases not even German. Barenfelderstrasse is today the north node of Hamburg's 100,000-strong Turkish community. It's a remarkable group, facing many of the same dilemmas Rieser and his contemporaries faced. How many of your customs, religious and social, should you change in order to become a citizen of Germany? Does it matter anyway? Will the Germans ever accept you? The district is electric with immigrant energy. The women, especially, take possession of the sidewalk. The bourgeois bohemian German women who live in the area dress down, but the Turkish women are chic to the max, and they know it. In the Red Lounge, owned by a couple of Turkish guys, I sat and watched a table of Turkish women in their twenties, two drinking beer, one in hijab drinking water. They smoked, laughed, completely oblivious to what seemed to an outsider the dichotomy of secular and observant Muslim women in a bar unaccompanied by male chaperones. There is nothing like a barber shave, and the Turks know how to do it. So I stopped into the Salon Bechet Aja to have my chin scraped. I wanted to tell my barber about Reeser, but English was not among the languages he spoke. There were signs in the shop, though, that he would have understood the story. Reeser fought his community's corner in the world of politics, and on the walls there were pictures of the boss with heavyweight politicians, former Turkish Prime Minister Bülent Echevet and Gerhard Schroeder, the former Chancellor of Germany. Leaflets for self-help organizations were mingled among the soccer magazines. Maybe they knew the lessons of Reeser's life without having heard of the man himself. I liked Hamburg. Its natives have the we-don't-care-where-you're-from-we've-seen-it-all-and-heard-it-all-before attitude of most great port cities. For some reason, the absence of the Jewish past did not affect me in this city as it does in other parts of Germany. Everyone's past was destroyed here when the firestorm flattened Hamburg in the summer of 1943, following several days of round-the-clock RAF bombardment. There are tiny bits and pieces of Jewish Hamburg left, 
In his will, Solomon Heine endowed a charity hospital for indigent Jews, and his nephew memorialized him in a poem about it. The thousand-year-old family affliction is what he called Judaism. Beautiful and bitterly ironic It's the essence of his work. Today, the new Israelite hospital is a job center near the sex emporia of the Reeperbahn. Its white exterior is daubed with anarchist graffiti. But there isn't much else. A plaque on St. John's Lutheran Church offered witness. It read, In 1933, 20,000 Jews lived in Hamburg. In 1945, there were 945. It goes on, We were silent when they were disenfranchised, driven away, and gassed, and their synagogues destroyed. We ask their forgiveness. When there is no one left to remember, that is how people become ghosts. So, everywhere I went, I asked the question, Do you know who Gabriel Reeser was? My landlady, Anya, hadn't a clue. Sylvia Stiller at the Hamburg International Institute of Economics didn't know. Down by the docks in St. Pauli, Claudia, manager of the Box Prince Café, didn't know either. But then she was an outsider, from Bavaria, and had only been living in town for twenty years. It became a bit of an obsession, finding someone who knew who Reeser was. My time in Hamburg was too short to make a thorough survey, but I knew where he was buried. Surely someone at the cemetery would know who he was. On the last day I was in town, I got on the U-Bahn train and headed for Olsdorf. Olsdorf is the Highgate Cemetery of Hamburg. It claims to be the largest in Europe. Opened in 1873, the modern history of the city is buried here. 2,500 Commonwealth airmen from the two world wars, mass graves of the victims of the Hamburg firebombing, the city's grandees, and just plain folk. The train deposits a visitor virtually at the front gate. All is mock Gothic. A sign pointed me towards a gatehouse for information. A middle-aged woman was seated at a desk covered in ledgers, engrossed in a phone call. She barely looked up at me. When the call was finished, she granted me eye contact. We had the awkward, Sprechen Sie English? interchange. She did not spreche. I tried my best to explain I was looking for Gabriel Reeser. She went through a ledger of ours. Nothing. She asked me something in German, and I made out what I thought was a word for date, and assumed she meant when did he die. I wrote down 1863. She shook her head. Nein, nein. He was Juda. Nine, nine. She took out a visitor's map and pointed me towards the main office block and reception. It was undergoing renovation. I found my way through the scaffolding to the office, had the Sprechensee conversation a few more times until someone came out who did speak English. I asked her where Reeser was buried. They had a computerized list of all the dead. Reeser's name was not on it. When did he die? 1863. Now that caused puzzlement because the cemetery didn't open until a decade later and it caused consternation because I insisted Reeser was there somewhere and that he was very famous, or used to be, and there was actually a large monument to mark the grave. But like everyone else in Hamburg, they did not know who he was and had never seen the monument. They continued to scour their computerized databases. He was moved here in the late 1930s, I think, when the Nazis shut down the Grindel Cemetery. The Grindel had been the burial ground of the Ashkenazic elite in the 19th century. It was shut down in 1937 by the National Socialists. In a negotiation with the Jewish community, a certain number of prominent corpses were permitted to be disinterred and moved round the back of Olsdorf. 
That information moved things along. The office staff conferred among themselves and reached consensus. If his grave was anywhere, that's where it would be. So I thanked them and went back out the main gate into what was a spitting drizzle and walked along the main road through the not-very-interesting suburban streets. I found the Jewish section on a cul-de-sac and turned in through the gate. There was a small red-brick chapel with some classical adornments. An office was around the side. Through the window I saw a youngish woman busily typing. I knocked on the door. Surely my search was over. She spoke English, but did not know who Reeser was. Sounding like an exasperated teacher, I asked her if her computer was online. Yes. Go to Google. Okay. Type in Gabriel Reeser. She did. Up popped a Wikipedia page, as I knew it would. A picture of his graveside monument was included in the entry. Oh, I know where this is, she said. She put on her coat, and before we set off, she asked me to get a covering for my head and pointed at a green box by the gateway. I put the yarmulke on, and we walked to the very back of the cemetery. There, in a little lawn separated from the rest of the dead by evergreen hedges, was the monument. A bit of white marble in the classical style, columns supporting a pediment, a relief of a semi-nude woman, perhaps Athena, posed in a position of strength. The words, Dr. Gabriel Reeser, were chiseled on it. Stretching out in a straight row, either side of the monument, were modest headstones bearing the names of the prominent citizens whose remains were not desecrated by the Nazis. One of them belongs to Heinrich Heine's mother, Betty. The young woman gave me a moment of privacy, and a moment was really all I needed, just enough to tell him he was not forgotten. We walked back towards the office and made small talk. Her name was Bea, and she had studied undertaking. Apparently, the modern business of death, with embalming and funeral parlors, is relatively new in Germany, and after taking her degree in embalming science, which included a period of work-study in a firm of East End funeral directors, she found herself without a job. Rather than sign on for the dole, she took a job at Olsdorf, inputting the names of the Jewish dead into their database. How did she get into undertaking, I wondered. I like to care for the bodies, she told me. I like to wash them, make them comfortable. I like to try and remember them, I thought. We shook hands by the office door, and she said she was going to go in and read up about Reeser. He seems like a very interesting man. He was, I said. Now Bea knows about him, and so do you. So for us, he's no longer a ghost. Coming from the east, from Berlin, Frankfurt rears up out of nowhere. The railway line twists through forest-crowned hills, and then suddenly, bang, a high-rise skyline. Oz on the mine. Nowhere in Germany do you feel the total erasure of the past as you do in Frankfurt. That's intentional. Eighty percent of the city was destroyed in the war. No firestorm, as in Hamburg or Dresden, just the steady pounding of Allied air raids and then the assault by the American army on what was then, and still is, the financial capital of Germany. But where other German cities tried to return to the low-rise shape of the pre-war landscape during their reconstruction, Frankfurt city planners opted for something else. The skyscraper. And unlike Paris and London, its only high-rise rivals in Europe, these enormous buildings were situated in the heart of the city. The problem for me, as a ghost hunter, is it makes it harder to locate where my ethereal trailheads are. 
I went to the Polskirche, where the Frankfurt Parliament, the first democratically elected National Assembly in German history, met to write a constitution for what its members hoped would be a unified German state. My ghost, Gabriel Rieser, had played a critical role in that get-together. The Paulskirche is one of the few historic buildings in Frankfurt rebuilt after the war. Rebuilt, but not restored. A great what-if hangs over the place. If only the Frankfurt Parliament's constitution had been accepted by Prussia's King Frederick William IV. The Prussian monarch was invited by the assembly to become the constitutional ruler of a new nation-state, a united Germany. But the king refused to meet Gabriel Rieser and his fellow deputies when they brought him the fruit of their labors. Kings do not accept their crowns from commoners. The parliament was dissolved. Germany would be united eventually by blood and iron, and it would be held together by more blood and more blood and more blood. I moved on in search of another Frankfurt trailhead, but found it no longer exists. The Judengasse, or Jews' Lane, the street where Europe's ghetto of ghettos once stood. Venice is the city where the word ghetto was coined, but the place in Western Europe where the ghetto experience was purest and lingered longest was the Frankfurt Judengasse, a tiny curved alley just at the city's eastern edge, around 350 yards long, no more than 10 feet across at its widest point, home to 3,000 people who were allowed out to do business by day, but locked in at night and on Sundays. It was so cramped sunlight never reached the street. One of its sons, Ludwig Borna, remembered the place as having a darkness prevailing there that calls to mind the ten plagues of Egypt. That was the case up to the moment Napoleon's Grand Army arrived in 1796 and, during an artillery bombardment, managed to set the Judengasse on fire. Jews were rehoused in temporary quarters while the buildings were repaired, but only a few returned permanently to the Judengasse when the work was done. Among them was the street's most famous resident, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, founder of the great banking house. His descendants would live in palaces, but he never left the alleyway. Anyway, there is nothing left of the Judengasse streetscape, as I found out on my visit. Today, there is the inevitable museum built over some archaeological remains that mark the ghetto's site. Otherwise, the modern city bustles by in a great hurry. The Judengasse Museum is on Bornaplatz, named for the writer and journalist Ludwig Borner, to whom you have already been introduced. He was born, Lou Baruch, on the Judengasse in 1786. He's forgotten now, a ghost. But in his time, Borna blazed the trail for the first Jewish intellectuals emancipated from the ghetto. The first step on the Borna path was education, outside a religious academy. Borna's father, a banker, sent him away from the ghetto constraints of Frankfurt for a secular education, and eventually the young man turned up in Berlin to study medicine. His talents were verbal rather than scientific, however, so he switched to law. By the time he finished his degree, Napoleon had directly or indirectly spread Jewish emancipatory statutes all over Europe, and Frankfurt was no longer the horror show of segregation and race laws that it had been when Borna was growing up. He went to work as a legal advisor to the city's police force. That might have been that, 
But following Napoleon's defeat, Frankfurt's masters took advantage of the change and reinstated the old laws. Jews were banned from the civil service, and Lou Baruch lost his job. All he had to live on was his facility with words, so the young lawyer started to write in the German-speaking world's equivalent of Grub Street. Work in journalism was the next signpost he planted for those following behind. New technology, industrial-scale printing, increasing literacy, and burgeoning nationalism were creating a vast new audience for political opinion. Journals to satisfy that audience were popping up everywhere. It was the blogosphere, with hard copy. Borna started a journal. He had to be careful. Throughout the German-speaking world, censorship was severe, so Ludwig Borna hid his political messages inside theater reviews. He found a distinctive style, ironic, witty, and elusive. German is not a language noted for its expression of any of those qualities. It was easy to write critically about the foibles and prejudices of the ruling elites in the German states under the guise of reviewing productions of historical dramas by Schiller or contemporary drawing-room comedies. He could dismiss a shoddy production as wasting everyone's time and make it at the same time a call to political action when telling his readers not to bother to go to see a play because these are times when constitutions are being written, parliaments being summoned, we all have our hands full. The next signpost on Borna's trail was what to do about religion. He converted to Christianity, for mundane reasons. Perhaps he could get his old job back. But also because it was a way of stating his desire to be known as a German, at a time when there was no Germany yet. His politics were nationalist, and some nationalists theorized it was not possible to be German without being Christian. But the nationalism Borna espoused wasn't the racial kind. It was about unifying the fragmented kingdoms, duchies, and free cities of the German-speaking world into a modern unified state. This was the most important sign he left on the trail for his fellow Jews. Work towards creating a modern German state. Borna had long left Judaism behind, but he understood that there was a link between the status of Jews in the German lands and the creation of a modern united Germany with a proper constitution and bill of rights. Equal rights for all guaranteed justice for the minority. Many followed his signposts. Among them was the poet Heinrich Heine, already well known for his verse. Heine became friendly with Borna in the salon of our old ghost Rachel Varnagen Venense. He emulated the older writer in two ways. Heine, also, after a struggle, converted to Christianity, and he began to dash off bits of prose for newspapers. But where Borna wrote theater criticism, Heine wrote travel pieces, letters from abroad, bits of history and personal anecdote with political messages inside. Heine traveled to England in order to think about Germany. When the fatherland faded from my eyes, I found it again in my heart. On the other side of the water, he was able to see his fellow Germans more clearly. He wrote, The Germans are a speculative race, ideologists, prophets and afterthinkers, dreamers who only live in the past and in the future, and who have no present. He wrote, The Englishman loves liberty the way he loves his lawful wedded wife, as a piece of property. The Frenchman loves liberty the way he loves his brand new bride. He burns for her. He will fight for her to the death. The German, on the other hand, loves liberty as though she were his old grandmother. And he got stuff like that past the censors. 
Both Heine and Borna studied the new political theories coming from Paris, like the utopian socialism of Count Henri de Saint-Simon. This primitive socialism shaped their vision of a united Germany, freed from the malingering vestiges of feudalism. Emancipation became their byword, and German unification their mission. But not every generation gets to make a revolution. Most Germans in the late 1820s were not prepared to embrace change as the French had been on the eve of their revolution, nor were they going to be chivied into demanding unification and equal rights by men who used language the way Heine and Borna did. They made jokes. There was something alien about wit to the blood-and-soil German nationalist. Heine and Borna might have been baptized, but their wit gave them away. What German makes a joke, the critics asked. The jokes proved they were still Jewish. Wit became part of the Jewish stereotype, like a big nose and skill in business. Then, by chance, everything changed. In July 1830, France erupted in revolution again. Ludwig Borna raced off to Paris immediately to report on events. Heine, typically, was traveling. By the time news of the revolution reached him, the fighting was over and a new French constitution was in place. No matter, the poet set off immediately to join Borna in the French capital. Both sent dispatches back to German newspapers on the political changes in France and what they might mean for Germany. Borna's letters, in particular, gained him a wide new readership. In time, his collected Letters from Paris became a classic text of German liberalism. He could write things from Paris, secure in the knowledge that he wouldn't be arrested. He became bolder. He wrote, When I say that all our various German governments have gone crazy, I mean it in the medical sense. What made them crazy, according to Borna, was their obsession with the dark side of the French Revolution, which blinded them to the many good ideas that motivated the event. How sad, for when governments take leave of their senses, it's the sane who get locked up. Over the Rhine, in Germany, Borna and Heine inspired a literary movement among the coming generation of liberal writers. Young Germany echoed the sentiments of Borna and Heine's dispatches from Paris. For those who agreed with them, the two authors were exemplary Germans. Conservative nationalists viciously disagreed. They referred to young Germany as young Israel and constantly reminded their readers of Borna's ancestry. It is miraculous, he wrote. I am well aware of the value of my unearned fortune, my being both German and Jew, thus being able to strive for German virtues without having to share any German faults. Borna acknowledged his ghetto birth shaped his politics. Yes, since I was born a slave, I love freedom more than you do. Yes, since I was not born in a fatherland, I wish for a fatherland more passionately than you do. Neither Borna nor Heine would ever leave Paris. They stayed because both men found that Paris was a place where they could be German. In Germany, they would always be Jews. But as Jewish trailblazers, their lives had profound meaning. They crossed together out of the no-man's land inhabited by the first Jews emancipated from the ghetto and established a place for their community, converts or not, at the high table of European culture. Half a century later, a brilliant young Jewish doctor from Vienna took a fellowship in neurology in Paris. Sigmund Freud did what all intellectuals do on their first trip to the City of Light. He went to the city's great cemeteries to pay homage to his heroes. The graves Freud visited were those of Ludwig Borna 
and Heinrich Heine, a tribute from the third generation out of the ghetto to the trailblazers of the first. Heine is remembered today. Borna is a ghost. He is a ghost twice over. Jews were the real victims of the Holocaust, but German literature was a metaphorical casualty. In the second half of the 19th century, German was the language to know. Since the war, study of the language has fallen away. Translations of its rich 19th and early 20th century literature are sparse. Borna's work is barely available because of the language he wrote in, as well as the heritage he came from. As a Jew, and as a German, he has been forgotten, except for his name on the intersection built over the remains of the ghetto where he was born. I am certain his ghost appreciates the irony. My trip looking for Jewish ghosts was almost over. It was evening as the train slowly came to a stop at Vienna's West Bahnhof. The late commuters sloped along the platform, slumped with their end-of-the-day weariness. But my step was light. I knew where I was going. It's not that I'm a regular traveler here. Vienna's a bit of a backwater, and there isn't much in the way of news that happens here for a journalist to cover. But there is something about the place that lightens my step. That's odd, because this is a city where tourists are invited to go on young Hitler in Vienna walking tours. I suppose it's because my ghosts are everywhere here, and they're closer to the surface. Vienna isn't Frankfurt, Hamburg, or Berlin. It wasn't flattened in the war. Give or take a few cobbles and the smell of horse dung, these are the streets my ghosts walked. These are the streets my grandmother dreamed of in New York. I don't think she ever saw them. But as a girl deep in the Austro-Hungarian Empire's eastern node, the city of Lemberg, today Lvov, it was Vienna she and her sisters dreamed of, as surely as the three sisters dreamed of Moscow and Chekhov's play. It was Vienna that the Jewish immigrants were trying to create in New York in the early part of the 20th century. This was the Jewish capital of the world. I have a friend who teaches in Vienna, American, not Jewish, won't tell you his name, for reasons you will soon understand. The first time we met, at a rather grand café along the Ringstrasse, he volunteered, I really feel the absence of the Jews more here than anywhere else in Europe. The fact that he made the statement without my prompting was interesting. I wonder how many people, as they travel the continent on business or for pleasure, bother to notice there are no Jews. My friend has lived in Vienna for a number of years, and I asked him if the natives ever brought up the Jewish question. The Austrians never mentioned them, he said. It is extraordinary, really. The community and the greatness of the city were inextricably linked. And in 1900, Vienna was great. The only serious rival to Paris as the world's cultural center. Freud, Mahler, Theodore Herzl, Alfred Schnitzler, Arnold Schoenberg, it would take a Vasari to do justice to the eruption of culture here that came from one community that a mere 50 years earlier was only allowed to reside in the city under very strict quotas. The restrictions on Jewish residents came to an end following the revolution of 1848. And then, in 1860, Vienna's Jewish population was around 6,900, by the end of the decade, it was 40,000. By 1880, it was 73,000. At the turn of the century, it was well over 100,000. In the city's central districts, Jews were often 40% of the population. Most of the people were immigrants from the provinces, and they grabbed at the opportunities the big city offered. 
In short order, a third of the University of Vienna's student body was Jewish. According to a study by Cambridge professor Stephen Beller, in 1890, 22% of the law faculty was Jewish or of Jewish origin, and an astonishing 48% of the medical faculty came from the community. Because of severe restrictions on Jews working in the civil service, many of these well-educated people turned to culture to earn a living. They wrote plays and started newspapers to review them. They provided the city's high and low culture, verbal entertainment in satirical and literary magazines, and its music, from light operettas to the podium of the state opera. Wealthy Jewish women organized salons where artists like Klimt could meet prospective patrons, Without this infusion of talent and energy, Vienna, in 1900, would have been a cultural backwater, trading on its glory days of Mozart and Beethoven. I met my American friend for dinner at the North Alp restaurant in Leopoldstadt, the former Jewish immigrant quarter. It used to be known as Matzah Island. I told him about my search for ghosts in Hamburg, Berlin, and Frankfurt, and mentioned a film I had seen at the Deutsches Historical Museum in Berlin, it was an endless loop of aerial footage shot by the American Air Force immediately after the war that showed the devastation of Germany's cities. A title would come up with a place name, say Frankfurt, then flyover images of street after street utterly destroyed. There is no earthly or heavenly justice for the crime of the Holocaust, but the utter destruction of those cities is a devastating form of vengeance. My companion picked up the theme of Austrian forgetfulness. Vienna had had serious damage done to it as well, he said, but unlike in Frankfurt or Berlin, the city had tried to recreate itself exactly as it was before the war. The fact that the Germans had rebuilt rather than recreated had helped that society come to grips with what had grown out of it. Said my friend, their architecture is a constant reminder in a Europe full of lovely historical cities of why they have none. He went on, the Viennese attitude to the Third Reich is nothing to do with us. We were victims, too. He found that view more than a little difficult to live with. We took the tram back to the center of town, shook hands, and said goodnight. I headed back towards my hotel via the Judenplatz. I wanted to look at Rachel Whiteread's wonderful Holocaust memorial there. You'll know of it, the squat concrete cast of a library, books facing outwards, so you can't see their bindings or their titles. Unknown books. Unwritten books, written by the people of the book. Choose your interpretation. The Judenplatz is a small square. If you didn't know where it was, you would never find it. Medieval lanes lead in and out of it. It's a shortcut home for the locals. People hurry by, one by one, occasionally a couple. They don't give it a second look partly because the memorial is not illuminated. A surprise. It's a major piece of sculpture by an important artist. You might think it would be imaginatively lit at night. You would be wrong. In the expressionistic shadows thrown by street lamps, you cannot see the details. It looks like one of the Nazi bunkers that lined the Normandy beaches, rather than a monument to those who thought the contribution they made to the city's life would protect them from all harm. The next day, I decided to talk to someone about this willful forgetfulness. On this journey, I had held back from talking to anyone about my ghost hunting. I thought they would think I was a little bit crazy. But I feel at home in Vienna, so my inhibitions were dropped. I went to the university. 
the Jewish community's beachhead in its campaign to integrate and change the city. The campus is a series of barrack-like buildings, plain, cream-colored, three stories high with fiercely pitched red-tile roofs. They are arranged into a series of quadrangles and courtyards, with less fly-posting on them than I've ever encountered on any university campus I've ever visited. I walked through an entry passage. It was marked Ludwig August Frankel Way. A ghost, but I know his story. Standing in the passage, a young woman wearing glasses was handing out free copies of the Viennese newspaper, De Presse. I asked her if she spoke English. She did. Her name was Valerie Eder. I pointed at the sign and asked Valerie if she knew who Frankel was. No, she replied, but I've been looking at the name and wondering. So I told her his story. The 1848 revolution in Vienna started when students at the university marched peacefully to the parliament building to demand academic freedom and an end to censorship as first steps towards building a democratic society. As happens to this day, the forces responsible for crowd control overreacted. The day's demonstration ended with five young men shot dead. Two of them were Jewish. After that, the gloves were off. The students and their worker allies seized control of the city. Prince Metternich, 75 years old and up to that point still running the show throughout the German-speaking world, snuck out of town. From the Imperial Palace came word that all press censorship was over. Free speech was allowed. That night, a young Jewish student named Ludwig August Frankel wrote a poem called The University, describing the day's events. It praised the students as Austria's liberators. The poem was immediately set to music and became the Austrian Marseillaise. By osmosis, everyone seemed to catch the tune. A few days later, the victims of the police overreaction were buried in a common grave. As the coffins were carried in procession from the campus to the city cemetery, thousands lined the streets holding sheets of paper with Frankel's lyrics printed on them. And at the bottom, it said, the first free publication in Austria. And that's who Ludwig August Frankel is, I finished. Valerie Eder thanked me. I asked her what she thought of the fact that he was Jewish, that so many of the people who made Vienna a great city were Jewish, and that now there were virtually no Jews here. She told me that, actually, her best friend was Jewish, and so she knew quite a bit about Judaism. I don't have a problem with Jewish people, she said. I do have some questions about the Jewish religion especially its rules about women. I nodded. From the time the ghettos opened up, those rules had been questioned. In some cases, they had driven women away from the community. In others, accommodations had been made. The religion itself had reformed, and the old prayer that men gave, thanking God for making them of the stronger sex, was dropped by many. The religion's adaptability had been a hallmark of its life in Vienna. Valerie explained her best friend is a lesbian, which put such rules into even sharper focus. Her girlfriend is also Jewish, she told me. Well, I said, their kid, if they have one, will be Jewish at least. Yes, she laughed. Tucked away in a corner two quadrangles over is the university's Jewish institute. I stopped in. The office is run by a woman named Dora Fisher, a Jewish enough-sounding name, but she is of mixed ethnicity, none of it Jewish. Her mother was Thai, her father Italian. Her presence in the Institute wasn't surprising. Most of the people you find working in Jewish museums and institutes on the continent aren't Jewish. 
for obvious reasons, but I'm always curious where the affinity comes from. In her case, it was the discrimination she suffered growing up in the Austrian countryside. The prejudice there was bad. I was a different ethnicity and not a Catholic, she told me. It was easier to blend in in Vienna. I told her her feelings about Vienna mirrored those of the parents of people like Freud and Mahler, who came to Vienna because of the persistent prejudice they encountered in the provinces of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We talked about the path those earlier immigrants blazed, and who walks it now. She was quite interested to hear my impressions of Hamburg's Turkish community, how it has organized itself, made its accommodations with the majority, carved out a unique identity, Turkish and German, in ways that reminded me of how the Jewish community organized itself after the ghetto. She knew quite a bit about Hamburg, and I got the sense from her that that port city has become a beacon for other immigrant communities, an example of how to stand up with a foot in two distinct worlds and maintain your balance. The Jewish Institute's librarian, Monica Schreiber, was a convert. A sociologist by training, she had gone to Israel to do research into Samaritan communities, met a local guy, fell in love, married. The arrival of children focused the woman question on her. Neither her husband nor she was particularly religious, but they both wanted the children to be Jewish, so she converted. I kept meeting converts while looking for ghosts. In Berlin, at Shabbat prayers, I had met a six-foot-six-inch-tall African-American from Chicago. The first question I asked, even before his name, was, When did you convert? The second was, Why? He answered, I felt an affinity with the people. Valerie, Dora, Monica, and Mark, that was my Berlin friend's name, all had that in common. The affinity for those who suffer, for outsiders, I think that is the meaning of my ghost stories. The emancipated lives they led in the 150 years between the ghetto and the gas chamber are a signpost for minorities, society's outsiders everywhere in this second age of mass migration. The last ghost I will tell you about was a man named Mordecai Ginsberg, pseudonym Aviezer. He was of the first generation to leave the ghetto behind. He told the story of his extraordinary times in an autobiography, what happened to him had universal meaning. He knew that. Come, he wrote, let me be a parable unto you. And that's why I keep looking for ghosts. Each one's life is a lesson.